as we begin and back into the book of John, one of the... Uh, one of those interesting things that happens for me often is that I end up going to weddings. And as a guy going to a lot of different weddings, I can run a wedding, but I still have yet to figure out how I'm supposed to dress when I'm all by myself. Um, in one particular event, uh, one, of, one of the congregants had invited me and my wife to their wedding. At a, it was over at Eagle Glen Golf Course, but my wife wasn't able to go. She had the kids, she left. And whenever that happens, men, what does that mean? means trouble, doesn't it? It's like, it's like, it's not gonna go well. And that's exactly what happened for me. First thing I did is I finally figured out a nice outfit to wear. It was this nice blue shirt and these khaki pants and some, some nice shoes. And I got a nice looking tie with it. I had worked really hard to make this coordinate. I'm like, yeah, I finally figured, because I'm, I'm horrible with fashion. My wife dresses me all the time. And so the reality is that I get up and thinking, I've got this down. I get in my car, I start driving and I realize I forgot the invitation. I have no idea where this wedding is. So I'm driving around to every golf course I can, and I'm like, nope, not that one. Trilogy had people I didn't know. So I took off, and I went over to, uh, I find myself to Eagle Glen, and I pull up at Eagle Glen, and that was the golf course. I get out, and I'm barely there just before everything starts. And I sit down, and I realize, oh, I forgot the gift. This is how bad it gets. And so I'm sitting here going, oh, this is horrible. And I call myself down. I'm like, you look, you made it. You can always give the gift to them on Sunday. When you see them later, when they get back, you're okay. And then I finally kind of... I start these conversations with people around me. I'm kind of relaxing, getting, getting connected. And I start realizing, man, everybody looks real sharp. And they're like all in these nice black suits, these black ties. All the ladies are in black or white. And I'm thinking, this is really formal. And one guy leans over to me and he goes, you know this was a black tie affair, don't you? And I'm dressed in this powder blue, light khakis with a black tie. And I'm like, hey, look, the tie's black. I'm okay, right? And I was just like, I want to crawl into the folding chair and just vanish, you know? And it just does not go well when I go by myself to a wedding. And here we have a wedding scene with a massive wedding faux pas that occurs. And Jesus is rolling in. And it's not like he's going to just show up. He's rolling in from, from the last time he had a bath probably was when John dunked him in the Jordan River. And so here he is. He was coming from way down here. This is the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, way down here. And they've traveled for three days up these roads past Psychopolis, you know, that's interesting names. And up here and down the roads, maybe he went through Nazareth and joined with his mom, went through Sepphoris, but they headed up into this hill town called Cana. Cana is about eight miles north of Nazareth and has a bit of a reputation of a battle between um, Nazareth and Cana and their, and their ideas. But Mary and um, Jesus and all his disciples have shown up at this wedding, likely partly way through the wedding at this point. Jesus has rolled into it because he's probably not shown up the first day with the way that we understand things. But but immediately there's this faux pas that Mary's going to be a witness of and she's going to bring Jesus into it. And that's going to start to teach us a lesson this morning. And so I'm asking you guys to jump into this wedding faux pas with me in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you need a Bible, they're available under the seat. You can open up page 887. And we'll be right there in the beginning of this, this narrative as it unfolds of Jesus kind of showing up. And he's going to give a pretty darn good wedding gift as we kind of look at this. And so John chapter 2, beginning in, in verse 1, this is a, the weddings were seven days long in a Jewish setting. It was not a, a one-day event. And so you got this idea, they're rolling into probably day three, maybe day four, halfway through. So it's been a little while. And Mary is off with the women because they would have separated the men and the women at a wedding ceremony. They would have not separated families, but in the separation of men and women, the women would be helping out over by the kitchens or dealing with the various aspects 
The men would be talking and dealing with another group of aspects. Yeah, and all this is centered around the, the actual ceremony and pieces that are happening. And so Mary gets a hold of some information. So we'll pick it up here. Verse 1. On the third day, there, came, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So this is three days after the last event. Um, ignore, the, ignore the chapter breaks. They don't exist in the original manuscript. And so the last thing that you and I have read and remember is that this guy, Nathaniel, has just come to Jesus and he's told Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, whoa, you're the king of Israel. You're blowing me away. And he's like, that blows you away? You believe because I told you that? You're going to see more amazing things. I'm going to open up heaven so that human beings can, can enter into heaven. That's what you're going to see me do. And so now, three days after that event, they've traveled up and made it to this town of Cana. They've been hoofing it. They make it into Cana. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said, Well, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother has said to the servants, do, do whatever he tells you. Interesting section, uh, section of, of the text because a lot of people interpret this different ways. It's a very odd thing. First of all, Mary would have found out that the wine had ran out early because it's likely because she was most likely related to this family. She would have been in charge of some of the kitchen things going on. Would have found out, hey, they're out of the wine. What a, you know, I better go do I'll go talk to my son. So she just manages either to drop it like, hey, just so you know, they ran out of wine. Like, hint, hint, do something. Or she's just making some general observation. Hey, they ran out of wine. Either way, Jesus answers kind of interestingly. I mean, remember the first thing Jesus said, right? What do you want? You know, that was the first thing out of Jesus' mouth in the book of John. Now he's going to turn to his mom and he says, woman, maybe that way, I don't know. But he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? The Greek literally says, woman, what's this between you and me? And it's weird, you know, everybody's like, why is Jesus kind of like in hostile mode to his, to his mom? He doesn't even call her mom. And, and so we can read a lot of like animosity. There's no real animosity actually in the text though. We read that in as our culture because we don't like, women don't like being called, hey, woman. You know, so it's just like, don't do that to me. You know, in their culture, it was a polite way of politely distancing yourself. And, and some scholars think that maybe what Jesus is doing here is distancing himself from his mother because he's started his ministry. In fact, he never will call her mom. He will call her woman throughout the rest of the book of John. In fact, her, she'll never be mentioned by name either. And so there's a sense that he's almost like distancing himself from his earthly mother in a, in a way that's polite and not rude. But he will make statements like, who is my mother and my brothers except those who have obeyed the father? So there's this kind of relationship that he's linked to God now. And he's emphasizing and he's underemphasizing his relationship with his mom. In the meantime, Mary still acts the role of the good Jewish mama, I think. You know, she's like, hey, son, they're out of wine. What, I, what am I going to do about that? My hour hasn't come yet. Well, psh, just, just listen to him. Okay, thanks, mom. You know, it's kind of this, she forces the issue in a sense. Some see that she is requested and he's kind of like said, well, my hour hasn't come yet, so sure, maybe I'll help out. But we're not quite sure how to understand this interplay. All we know is that in, it's supposed to anticipate that Jesus is going to do something. And so Mary turns to these servants and she says to them, look, and the only command she ever gives in all the scripture is do whatever he tells you. 
And so it moves on, verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. There would be a man amongst the, the groomsmen or amongst the family who would have been selected as the master of the feast. He would have been like uh, the guy who kind of controls the feast, make sure everything is moving, all the food is getting where it's going. He's like our modern day wedding coordinator slash DJ. You know how those guys work? Introduce everybody in. And now coming all the way from Cana, you know, that's kind of his job. And so this wedding, they're going to bring this water, it's now become wine to this guy. But I want to pause before we get forward. I think it's interesting that Jesus is even focused on this issue. You ever wondered about that? Like, so they ran out of wine. What's the big deal? Yeah, it's a social faux pas, ouch, halfway through the wedding or however far through the wedding we are. And whoops, we're all out of wine. Well, Jesus is going to deal with that. Why? It's not like he has to. It's not important. I mean, later he's going to take leprosy away from people. He's going to raise people from the dead. He's going to walk on water. I mean, that's amazing. Those seem like importantly big issues. Changing water into wine? What's up with this? Except it implies, remember, when you read about Jesus, you're reading about God. And what it implies is that God cares massively about very insignificant things in our lives. Now, how many times have I heard in Super Bowl season, somebody says, oh, God doesn't really care about who wins the Super Bowl. Why are you praying about that? I kind of think God cares about everything human beings are involved in, regardless of whether it is the Super Bowl or whether it's a job interview that you have or whether it's that wedding that you're planning or whether it's the struggle in your workplace with that individual. Some of us actually back away and begin to actually think, God's too busy to deal with my little insignificant thing. Can I tell you he's not? Can I tell you, God cares even about the small, insignificant things like running out of the juice, running out of the wine, not having enough soda at your party. That seems weird, except that's how massively God cares about us. Jesus didn't have to do anything. Jesus didn't have to pick this as his first sign, but he does, and he engages it. And I want to I kind of pull that out because what's interesting is that he then proceeds forward and doesn't do anything. Anybody notice that in the text? Look again at it. He, Jesus isn't going to do anything. Instead, there were six stone water jars for Jewish rites of purification. So these jars are there, and the Jews would use them, and they would wash their hands, and they wash their feet, so they're purified before they eat. And that's what those were for. And so he says, hey, take those, fill the jars with water. That would be a two-hour process. We don't quite, we, we kind of skip over the mundane and they drug the water jars out to the, out to the stream and they filled it, whatever. Two hours of labor these guys are, do for just listening to Jesus. Jesus says, go do that. They go do it. Two hours later, they show up and they're all filled to the brim. And he says, okay. And he walks over and he says, alakazam. No, he doesn't do anything. Literally, all he does is say, now draw some out and take it to the masters of ceremonies. And they do it. He doesn't touch it. He doesn't talk to it. We don't even know if he looked at it. And so you're going, what kind of miracle is this? Except it gets to the point. The Mary was absolutely correct. She simply says, do whatever he tells you. And when we do whatever Jesus tells us, what happens is we see God's blessings. 
Obeying God's word leads to seeing God's blessings. Doing what Jesus, doing what God, living out what the Bible says leads to a set of blessings that only come from living with God and enjoying God. They may be insignificant things that we're dealing with, but God's blessings are available. And in many ways, as Christians, it is connected to our obedience, our walking with him. There are these tons of blessings that come forth. There's a very, and blessings, by the way, are, are good things. Don't, don't get me wrong. They are always good things. They're, they're, they're blessings like suddenly a financial aid shows up in the mail you weren't expecting. There are blessings like your neighbor lets you borrow their car when you're in the midst of a problem. There are blessings like your AAA card actually works and a tow truck driver actually takes you. So, you know, they're blessings. Small or great. But there is a set of blessings that comes when you're living with God and in God's words that you can't beat. In fact, it, it, over and over again in the Bible, it shows up. All the way back in Deuteronomy. In fact, it's even earlier in the Exodus and even earlier in, in, in Genesis. But this is one of those sections. They've divided Israel up into two hills. And they put them up there and they're shouting at each other. And, and they're shouting out the curses and the blessings of the nation. They're accepting them. And as he's giving instruction to this, Moses says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. The blessing was attached to the obedience of the people. And this blessing would go on to being like milk and honey and overflow and you would have homes and you would have all of this amazing sustenance in your society and in your job and in these places. It was just, it was tangible wealth and blessings that God had promised through walking in obedience to him. And we think, oh, that's Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled the law and he did all this. Those blessings don't exist for us anymore except that James comes along and says this, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, not the Old Testament law, but the law of liberty, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love one another, Jesus will say, as I have loved you. That's the law of liberty. You live in those heartbeats. You live in those ways and you walk in the law. And if you, li- if you look at that law and you persevere in loving God, persevere in loving others as Christ loved us, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be what? Blessed in his doing. Isn't this true? I mean, you show up on Sunday morning and many of you have selected to show up a service earlier than this. We kind of jokingly talked to the 8.30 service like, man, you guys are early risers. You made it here and whew, awesome. Thank you for being here. And they all laugh because they know they've been up since 5.30 because that's what time they woke up. And, but what they don't realize is there's a bunch of people that also woke up and it's many of you that just finished serving their kids and finished serving their grandkids. And you could have slept in this morning. Amen. There are many people in the United States right now choosing to sleep in today than to gather together under the hearing of the word of God, to be led in worship, to celebrate together in a community and to be known. And I hope, and our prayer is always that you leave here and you walk away going, you know, that was worth it. That was absolutely worth it. I'm blessed for having walked as the Lord commanded me. It's the same thing that happens when you've, you've served and that baby's going, and some of you moms are having heart palpitations. And they... 
And your whole and baby won't calm down. And that faithful servant in there is holding and bouncing because you got to bounce them. And you're rocking them and, and moving. And the baby calms down so you can enjoy some time to worship God. And you know what? You're blessed. And that person, when you go and you thank them, they're blessed. And this is the blessing that we have when we live out the word of God. When we obey whatever Jesus has told us to do. My simple question is this. What has Jesus told you to do that you're not obeying? What is something that you know at the bottom of your heart that God has told you to let go of and you haven't let go of? That he's told you to get moving in. A neighbor to talk to. A friend to connect with. Somebody that God has been telling you over and over and over again. Do this thing. Do this thing. And you've been stuck on it. And your spiritual life is stuck on that one thing. Do we realize how much blessing we're missing out on? Because we just haven't taken the step forward in obedience. We haven't trusted him that he knows what's best. I mean, those guys could have sat there and said, Really, you want us to fill up the hand washing jars? Really? Was there a servant who just went, this is ridiculous, and went and did something else to try to solve the problem? You know, ran to, the, ran, ran to go buy some new wine? Instead, these servants trusted him and they obeyed and they saw the blessings of God. And that's the calling to the church. Our life is not in what we can do. It's in the trust and obedience of what God has told us and we will see his blessing. You say, yeah, Greg, that's great. Except I trusted God, I obeyed God, and my life is not that good right now. How do you explain that? That's where the rest of the story comes in. Let's take a peek. The second scene then begins that the water is suddenly changed. And we see this. Uh, So we'll go back to verse 7. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the masters of the feast. The master of the feast. So they took it. Now when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So this master ceremony goes, get, get this guy over here. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, that's the ESV's version of euphemism for drunk, when everybody's drunk, then the poor wine, that's the literal Greek. And he says, But you kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee. And the bridegroom's like sitting there. You just imagine the bridegroom's like, yeah, yeah, I brought it out now. Yeah, he's just like, the social faux pas gone. He's cool. (laughs) And the reality is, Jesus does this miracle and only like a handful of people see it. But what in the world is going on? Because some of you guys right now can't track the rest of this message because you're going, Jesus made water into wine at a party. And people were drunk. What is Jesus doing? He can't do that. Oh, we know, we know. The wine wasn't fermented. This is grape juice. He made jugs and jugs of grape juice. Whew, I feel better. I hate to tell you this. There was no such thing as grape juice in the first century. And you go, yes, there was. No, once you began to squeeze the, grape, the juice of grapes, the dirtiness of the environment began to ferment the grapes within an hour. By two hours, they already transferred it to another vat in which you would further ferment to become true wine that you could offer. All wine in the ancient world was fermented, period. It was an impossibility not to. That's a difficulty for our culture in some cases. And I'll be honest. 
We got Jesus not just producing a bottle of wine. If you calculate the amount of water, the amount of water that was in those jugs, it comes out to about 110 to 190 gallons of water. Turned into wine, you, that equates to, if it was at the max size, 940 bottles. To 800 to 940, that's a wine cellar he created. So Jesus has just created plenty of wine for the rest of the feast. Now, in their day, they would take it, as the Greeks would drink it, two-part water, one-part wine. That was the Greek style of drinking wine because it would last longer. But the, the Old Testament, that was considered like messing your, messing your wine up and a curse by God. The reality was they drank wine that was fermented. And, but is Jesus then endorsing drunkenness? I mean, you got all these people who have drunk all this wine and now he's produced more wine. Is Jesus going like, yeah, drink up, people? No, 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 no. Jesus very clearly has not endorsed drunkenness. In fact, all the teachers of the Bible and the Old Testament are very clear. Do not get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. It's a waste of your life is what it's saying. The Old Testament over and over and over again, while celebrating that wine is a good drink for celebration that brings joy and should be enjoyed and helps out to make the heart happy, it should never be used to obsess and abuse. In that case, the Proverbs over and over and over again tell you your life is going to be destroyed. You do not drink to get drunk as a Christian. Tell you why. What good does it do? If you're using alcohol, if Jack Daniels is your buddy you're talking to over your issues, if you're sitting down and, and Mr. Coors and your bud is bud, and that's who you're hanging out with because you're depressed and you're having a hard day at work, you need to get help. Because you're medicating yourself with alcohol. You may be a functioning alcoholic if you party every weekend and you can't have a party without getting drunk. And you need to hear me clearly. That is not the way Christians deal with their problems or their pains. The Christian is not to get drunk. The Christian is to be filled with the Spirit of God who leads you and walks you through health and life. He is the one we lean on. You go in prayer. You struggle through. You come to community who gives you wisdom. And you beat the problems of life. You don't drink them into oblivion. And I get it. Some of you guys are stuck in the snare of alcoholism. And it's a pernicious, horrible thing. And you need community and you need prayer and you need groups to aid you and love on you and care about you. You're not going to get shamed. You're going to get helped. And that's what needs to happen. And I just want to be clear though. The Bible is very clear that no, you're not supposed to get drunk. But does that mean you shouldn't hang around people who are drunk? Absolutely not. That's not the point. Yes, go to those parties. You don't have to go to the party and not get drunk. Jesus went to plenty of these things. In fact, when he was speaking of himself, this is what people accused him. He said, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. By the way, most of us probably fall into the glutton category than the drunkard category, just want to warn us. So, ow. Anyway, the reality is Jesus going, yeah, I sat and I ate. Yes, I sat and I drank. But Jesus never got drunk and Jesus never ate to excess. He went to these places in full self-control. He understood the difference in the way that we party. And that's the other thing. People are like, oh, Jesus is endorsing partying. No, he's not. See, there's two forms of partying. Jesus does endorse one form of it. Right now in America, right now, most of our parties are based on the Bacchanalian, which is the Roman form of partying. 
It's called a drinking party. And they would worship the God of Bacchus, who was the God of wine. And they'd gather together to have all kinds of unmentionable acts done together, as it says in scripture, and to drink like crazy. And that was the whole point of the party. And many today go into their weekend to party hardy with no point. We're celebrating the weekend. Actually, as a Christian, here's how God tells you to celebrate the weekend. Get some rest. Relax and get some sleep. Don't work so hard. Take a whole day and rest and enjoy the time of breathing and not working. That's the blessing given to us. And so the Bacchanalian was very clearly outlawed. I mean, Peter is very clear about it. That time has passed. It sufficed for doing what the Gentiles wanted to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they'll actually make fun of you. They'll malign you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Which is the point of partying, by the way. See, the Jewish people had a partying aspect. And you'll read about parties. You ever read about the celebrations? Constantly, God will say, drink your wine and your strong drink and enjoy before the Lord. And here's my point in that. It doesn't, you can drink alcohol, but not drink it to excess. The question is, can you do it before the Lord? The Lord has convicted you not to drink alcohol. Don't drink it. If the Lord hasn't given you that conviction and you have control and you don't get drunk, the question is, can you do it in such a heart that you can invite Jesus in the middle of that time period right into your party? Could you stop the whole thing and have a real prayer and say, can we just dedicate this to God right now? That's a party that Jesus is endorsing because they celebrated things and all Jewish celebration dealt with either life or religious things. And so it was a celebration of life or a celebration of death and religious things. And so a celebration of life at a birth, the celebration of life at the beginning of a marriage, all of this was what Jesus is endorsing in celebration. So are we clear on that? We got this? Because it's really important because it's a real confusing thing. It sounds like we're, we're, Jesus is out there endorsing these things. He's not. Let's step aside though. So what is Jesus doing? Why do this sign? Except that what's interesting about wine is that it's a picture of the messianic reign meaning the thousand-year reign, heaven, however you want to talk about that, the ultimate blessings. In fact, in the book of Amos, in one of the more famous passages, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall t- overtake the reaper and the, treater, or the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. That's a lot of wine. It'll go on to talk about how they're going to drink it and enjoy it. The point is, this is a picture of the Messianic age. When the Messiah comes, they say there will be such an abundance of provision. And one of the pictures was that the mountains would drip wine. There would be an abundance of wine and availability for all the goods and the great things that are happening in a celebration because eternity is a grand, eternal celebration of life before God. And so here Jesus produces... 800 to 940 bottles of wine. A picture of the Messianic kingdom. And when they saw that, they went, we know who you are. You produce an abundance, the very things of the blessings of eternity. And it's not just like, you know, that's okay. It's not two buck chuck. This is like the $30, $60 bottle of wine. I just calculated all that to $30 bottles of wine, which some people tell me is like not expensive wine. And 
It's $28,000 worth of wine. Jesus is extravagant in this. Overwhelming in this. Because when Jesus shows up to act, when God brings a blessing, they're great blessings and they're excellent. They're good quality blessings. God doesn't do cheap. God, God doesn't go chintzy on you. You say, well, what does this have to do with my life right now? I've been obeying God and I don't see the blessings. Guys, the greatest blessings are coming in eternity. Jesus obeyed every single day of his life. And what did he receive? Torture and crucifixion. Only to receive three days later, exaltation, eternal glory, the name above all names. And he is the giver of eternal life. And what you and I have available to us as we trudge this life are the blessings of eternity, which are gigantic. Who doesn't want to be eternally young? Amen, everybody over the age of 50, 60, and 70. You know, all, yeah, amen. Like all those 30-year-olds were like, yeah, you know, it's cool. I keep being told it's going to get worse. And it's like, okay. But there's no sickness, no old age, no disease, no pain, no mourning. How many more people do we have to say goodbye to? How many more times do we have to hear cancer till we realize the great blessing we've received in Jesus Christ that is abundant into eternity? Perfect quality bodies, a perfect quality earth, a perfection in its beauties and its glories. That's something to rejoice in. That's something to hope for. That's something that should drive us. That means when you're trudging through and obeying God's word and you're not seeing the blessings, Jesus would tell you, you are storing up the treasures in heaven. Oh, they're coming back. And we have no clue how good and beautiful those treasures when they come back will be. Because his blessings are are great, huge, and of good things. And I'm not saying, I'm not a health wealth guy. I'm not here to tell you guys, do good things and God will give you. Like I said, sometimes you don't get that. It's postponed to eternity. But are we willing to be faithful, knowing the hope that we have? Because it'll make us realize how great his grace is. God, how, how great is God's grace? This is the one to whom is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or What? Think that you can even imagine. Imagine. Guys, God is that great. We have no thought about, you, you can't totally imagine what eternity is going to be like. You can't totally grasp it. That's how great he is in his glory, how good he is to you and me, and how wonderful his blessings will be. Even in the tough times. What about the suffering right now? What about the difficulty? Well, that suffering leads to endurance. That endurance leads to character. It says that character produces hope. Who doesn't want to be a great kind of person inside? Who doesn't want to be the, the quality kind of person that people look to? And that's what suffering gives us so that even eventually we look to the blessings we receive from the suffering because we have blessed lives. And you will look back and you'll say, I don't ever want to go through that again, but God turned it to the good. Is that not a blessing? Christians in the room right now, I want to tell you something. This is why you and I should constantly have thanks and praise on our lips. This is why when we sing out to God, we can't help but constantly recall what he has done. Remember how good he is and shout for joy and wonder at what God has done. That's why we do worship on Sunday mornings in a musical style. It's why we give opportunity to shout and praise God, to clap and sing his praises, to hear what he has done. It is called thanksgiving and we should be filled with it continually. Amen?
So what is it maybe that God has asked you to do that you've not done and that you're missing out on blessing? And where has he already blessed you and you just have yet to have thanked him? Because honestly, what, there's one more response that needs to come in all of this. There's one more huge piece. And that is simply that as they leave in, in, in line, three, line 11, look at it. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. How? He, he, he changed. He did what alchemists have never been able to do. He changed literally one substance into another and he didn't even touch it. He made water into wine. Blows people away. And this small group that saw it, it says this, and his disciples believed in him. Do we realize that God's blessings, great and good blessings, come, our response is to believe. As a Christian, your response is not to have more anxiety in your life, but the more that you see God provides for you, the more that you see his grace is infinite, the more that you turn to him and ask him in prayer for the small little things and he answers you, the more thankful you realize you can be, the less anxiety you should have and the more trust you can place in the great God who is over all things. And what Jesus is challenging us to do is to entrust him in the little things and the great things because he is good in all things and his grace is infinite. And you know, there's a challenge to those of you in this room who may be exploring Christianity or you're just here because you're with a loved one. And that is this, that God can bless even you to prove himself to you. You've been saying, hey, maybe go to God and say, God, would you reveal yourself to me? Louis Zamperini was a man who was in World War II. If you've seen the movie Unbroken, he finds himself on a raft for something like a month and a half or two months. It's like ridiculous. He's been shot out of the air, lives on this survival, survives in this raft for an immensely long period of time. Fighting sharks, fighting the sun. In the middle of his turmoil, he cries out to God and says, God, if you save me, I will serve you. God saves him right into the hands of the Japanese. <laughs> who then put him into a camp where he is point picked out as the single guy to be abused and beaten by the warden of this camp. And no matter where he goes, he couldn't escape him until finally he was freed one day. He gets home a broken, angry, bitter man. Alcoholic, sitting in his home, not knowing anything, doesn't care until he goes to a Billy Graham crusade because his wife ushers him there. At which he hears the gospel, remembers what he told God, and said, wow, I've received the great blessing I asked for. The only thing I can do is now believe. If you're not a Christian, maybe that's what you need to do is you're calling, God, fix this in, in my life and I will believe in you. Maybe you already made that declaration and he blessed you and you have yet to uphold your side of the bargain. Or maybe right now as we play this final song, in the quietness of your heart where nobody else needs to see or hear, there is that great need that you need God to meet you at. And if he deems to bless you, the only response that you have left is to trust him and to hear and trust his great gift in Jesus Christ for you. So as we go into this time, church, what is it that you need to obey? What is it you need to praise and thank God for? And maybe those of you who aren't part of the church, you're not a Christian yet. What is it that God could meet you in to show himself to you? Would you join with me in prayer? Father, we come before you and we thank you that you've given us just this amazing picture of who you are in Jesus. That you would love us with such an incredible love to bless us 
and show us that your blessings are good, great. In fact, they're unending. We ask that you would challenge us and continue to shape us and teach us to to trust you more and more and more as you reveal more and more of yourself. So we surrender ourselves over to you. Open our hearts in this time, we pray to you, that as we connect with you now, in Jesus' name, amen.